my goal today as we continue in week two of Advent within this series, as you can see, for unto us the Son is given, which by the way, if you didn't make the connection yet for given, do you see it in the same text there? That might be news to some of you. Um, that was intentionally put there. Last week, we, we heard about wonderful counselor reading through the names of Jesus coming out of Isaiah. And today, we move into this phrase, mighty God. And my goal today is that you would see Jesus that there would be some new lens or perhaps something that you've known or that's been old that's become fresh for you as we unpack this phrase. And the way I'm gonna do that today is by asking two questions. And the first question is this, what does it mean to call God mighty? What does that mean? And then later on in the sermon to pivot to, okay, with that in mind, what does it mean to call Jesus mighty God. And so that's kind of the direction that we're going to be moving in today as we unpack this phrase in the Hebrew, El Gibor, El being the word for God and Gibor being the word for uh, mighty. It can be used as a noun as, and as an adjective. We're going to get there. I'm going to, I'm going to pray um, first. Lord, we give you this morning and I ask, Lord, as is commonly my prayer for clarity as we approach this gift you've given us and the revelation of your word. And so God, we ask that truth would stand, that, soft, that hearts would be soft, that transformation would come, that you would keep away deceit, that lies would fall away, that misunderstandings would be cleared and that you would be glorified. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. And so that, first off, okay, okay, that the phrase mighty God and this name for Jesus, what does mighty, what does Gibor mean? And you can find it all over the place, 150 plus times. I just picked out two as an example. In Joshua 8.3, it says, So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men, that word there is the noun form of Gibor, of valor, and sent them out by night. Jeremiah 20, it says, But the Lord is with me like a violent warrior. That's Gibor. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. Since they have not succeeded, they will be utterly shamed and everlasting humiliation will never be forgotten. And so if you were to do a word study, what in the world does this word mean? Mighty. There's lots of, th lots of glosses. Go ahead and put up all the different words here. That's the Hebrew word gibor in the upper corner. Kind of at the core meaning is this idea of warrior, often referring to kings throughout the Old Testament. This word happens a lot in areas of the Bible in which there are battles or in which we're referring to rulers or kings. At the core meaning of this is someone who is capable of asserting their will, but you can see kind of glosses around, victorious, hero, strong, powerful, champion. And when we study a word, it's helpful to see kind of the different glosses, which is why when we tell you, when you're doing Bible study, it's really nice to have a couple different translations open and to be able to read them together. NIV, NASB, ESV, CSB. I might have left King James. We'll throw that in there for some of y'all. Have a, have a couple different to open to look at them. I know some of you love to read the message. Not great for study. You can read it reflectively, but if you're going to study the Bible, it's really not helpful for something like this. 
a paraphrase, not a translation, but nonetheless, this is how we gather kind of the essence of the meaning. And if we're gonna answer this question, what does it mean to call God mighty? I think one of the best ways is to kind of lean into a story in the Old Testament that pretty sure everyone in this room, in fact, people who don't even know a lot about the Bible have heard this story to get a sense for what it means to call God mighty, to believe God, to be mighty. And that story takes us to, the, to an account of a young man in his mid-teens, most likely his mid-teens based on the data we have. You see, this man, some thousand years before Jesus, was anointed king. And a little bit later, after some time had passed, the current king, one of his servants came to him and said, Saul, that's the name of the king, Saul, we have this young man, this list of qualifications. He's awesome at all these things. And in one of those qualifications, you know what they referred to the young man as? A gibor. He's a gibor. And so he comes into Saul's court and he begins to serve in Saul's court. Now, not too longly after this, the armies of Israel are facing an enemy and that enemy is the Philistines. The next man in the text referred to as a gibor, that word for mighty, that word for warrior, the very next person referred to as a gibor is this tall giant of a man standing, challenging the people of Israel. And we know him as Goliath. Again, he's tall, he's strong, he's scary. And the people of God are intimidated and they are afraid. Because before them is a picture of human might. This was Israel's problem. They looked at Goliath and they saw human might and it bred fear. And then we have this young man, David. Again, likely 14 or 15. We know this because the Hebrew word used to refer to him as well as the fact that his three oldest brothers were in the army and that's it. In the text we find ourselves in is 1 Samuel 17, 31. It says, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. And so David was brought to him. David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him, Goliath. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. This entire conversation, Saul and the armies of Israel framing this situation through the lens of human might. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And then verse 37, this is this linchpin. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, may the Lord be with you. Now, 
in David's mind, who was doing the fighting? God was. The weapon didn't matter. The enemy didn't matter. And this is where self-help preachers get really annoying because you listen to some messages, some messages on, uh, online in which you'll hear people talk about the significance of each of the smooth stones that David picked up to take into battle and how those symbolize the different things you need to gather in your life to beat down your own Goliaths. It's junk. I wish I could use a stronger word from the pulpit, but I won't. It's junk. Such a message wouldn't make sense to David. Such a message makes his victory all about human might. David knew. Look at verse 37. What does it say? The Lord had delivered him from the lion and the bear. The Lord would deliver him from the Philistine. God is the one who would win this. And if it had been two Goliaths, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. It could have been an army of Goliaths. It wouldn't have changed the outcome. It could have been a shepherd boy versus dozens of special operation soldiers wielding guns. It wouldn't have changed the outcome. Because David wasn't the one doing the fighting. David wasn't the one doing the winning, rather. He didn't even need to go in with a sling. He could have gone in with a stick. He could have gone in with a single rock. He could have gone in with his bare hands. It's not the point. This isn't a story about human might. This is a story about God's might. The warrior God, the powerful God, the God who is a hero, a champion, who is victorious, who is mighty, mighty to save, mighty to deliver. It is about a God that simply does not lose. And David knew that. And every other Israelite would have told you, God is mighty, but yet they still cowered in fear because they only trusted in the might of their own ability, their own experience, their own weapons. And you might point to other stories in scripture in which you see something similar. But I would say David's story is unique for a particular reason. One example is you look at Israel in the wilderness, okay? You look at their, their boldness, what they were willing to do and what happened? And, and I would say they saw God do some pretty radical things, including pillar of fire, cloud by night, or um, blah, pillar of fire by night and cloud by day, parting the Red Sea. You might point to Gideon and his 300 soldiers, an army that was winnowed down to just 300 to fight the enemy based on how they were drinking water. And yet they went into battle with people on their left and right. I'm not trying to make less of what Gideon's army did. It was amazing that they won with so few people. But they had a man on their left and right. I want you to think about David. What did he have? He had the memory of God's past faithfulness, which is often the only thing some of us have when we face difficult, fearful, intimidating situations. He had an unswerving trust in the power of his God, and he had no one on his left or right it was just him and God. And that was enough for him to step in a place that caused everyone else to be intimidated. It was enough to face an enemy that no one else wanted to. It was enough to put fear in its place. You can show the, there you go. And what David 
did to Goliath, Jesus came to do to death. What David did to Goliath, Jesus came to do to Satan. What David did to Goliath, the power of God, the might of God, Jesus came to do to sin. That, this is the gospel message that we cling to. That after Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't, after he died the death that we deserved, after he died on the cross in our stead, that we might have the life he purchased for us on our behalf, that when he uttered the phrase, it is finished, he meant it for those who would entrust their lives to him. And I just want you to imagine being on the battlefield because that, that little photo up there of David with the sword, they leave that out of the children's Bibles, okay? You go online, there's plenty of photos of him holding up his prize. But you see David holding up the head of Goliath no one in their right mind is thinking, oh, Goliath can still come back from that. Could just well have said, it's finished. And as finished as Goliath was, as David lifted up his head, so as victorious Jesus was on the cross over Satan's sin and death. Finished. That's the might and the power of our warrior God. But what does it mean then? What does it mean to call Jesus mighty God? I have four things, four things that I wanna unpack for us quickly. What does it mean to call Jesus mighty God? This was a, a phrase that would have been meant for a king. It would have made sense referring to a king by this kind of terminology. Again, this idea of power, hero, champion, strength, victory. My first thing is, what does it mean to call Jesus mighty God in eternity before the manger? My hope for us is to, is to stir as I have in my prep, awe for Jesus as we think about how his might, how the might of God has been demonstrated and revealed and seen in the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son. And in Colossians 1, verse 16, it says, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. Talking about Jesus. This is, this is before the incarnation. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him, all things hold together. Creator of all things, sustainer of all things. Two different points there. This includes our world. This includes everything you see when you step outside. This includes every star in the sky including the stars on this slide. And something like this, I feel like I came across this this week and I was just blown away because it's good to be reminded every now and again of the magnitude of reality. For that little speck in the corner is our sun edged against one, one of the, if not the largest stars that we know of in the universe. It's mind blowing. These stars being spaced out by billions and billions, if not more light years across the universe. And just to add to the magnitude, a few weeks ago, um, I, I, I was reminded of, as, as, as I was reading, of, of a, a concept talked about in one of my theology classes in school, which is the timelessness of God. I'm gonna unpack this more on Good Friday. 
But just, just briefly, for God, a day is a thousand years and vice versa. God is outside of time. You've heard us say that. You've probably, many of you have said that he's outside of time. What in the world does that mean? Classically within the church, kind of the, the theological explanation, way of understanding this is that God does not have a past. He does not have a future. God experiences all of time as his present. Put that star, put the, put the thing of the star back up, please. Now I want you to think of the universe because this isn't just temporal, it's spatial, which means Jesus before you, before the incarnation, in eternity, experienced all of space-time as is present, as is now. It's kind of mind-blowing to think about. This is the magnitude and the majesty of this person. This is the might of Jesus, God in the flesh. And the text says that Everything is held up by him. By him, all things hold together. The other night we were doing readings for Advent. I held up a pen with my kids because we read this text in Colossians and they're all at the table and we lit some candles and then I held this up and I said, what is keeping this pen from falling on the table? And of course, one of my kids said, God. (laughs) Yes, not what I'm looking for. All right. And, and I went like this, and then I asked them again, okay, what, what's keeping the pen? They're like, your hand. And I explained to them God's active involvement in creation. That Jesus didn't just speak stuff into motion. The world is sustained actively by the power of our God. That's Jesus. This is the might and the majesty and the power of our God. What does it mean next? What does it mean to call Jesus mighty in his life up to the cross? We talked about the cross already, but in the life and ministry of Jesus, where do we see mighty God? Well, we see demons flee Jesus, don't we? We see sickness erased by Jesus, don't we? We see death undone by Jesus. And in one particular story, Jesus and his followers are on a boat and a storm comes and the waves get strong and the wind gets strong and they get scared. And in such a circumstance, what do we do? What any kind of sane person in that moment probably would in the world, you do the best you can to manage what you can. You lean immediately, primarily into human might. Get the sails ordered, toss stuff overboard if we need to. Is the rudder where, where it needs to be? I'm not a boat guy. There's probably a bunch of other things that you would do. But in those kinds of circumstances, that's where we lean. When you get scared, when you get frustrated, when you get stressed, when something happens at work, when something happens in your family, when your kid is going through something at school, the default, the default response for most of us is, What do I need to do? It is an automatic positioning of what can I accomplish with human might? And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you're supposed to do nothing. Jesus is in the boat. Go to him first. Go to him first. Because as soon as Jesus was sought out, he uttered what translates into English as three words. 
quiet, be still. And what was a storm became peace, just like that. A lot of people in the world spend a lot of time and energy vying for control and dominance. Heck, even our own feeble attempts to manipulate the earth. It's nothing, nothing compared to words uttered by Jesus. Next, number three. What does mighty God mean in the reign of Jesus after his resurrection? Because he died on the cross for you and me, but he didn't stay dead. And in Ephesians 1, 20 to 21, it says he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead, seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Hmm. Read verse 21 one more time. Should you see this? Above every ruler and authority. I'm going to say it again, above every ruler and authority. I don't know if any of you have heard, this might be news to some of you, but there's a, an election year coming. Next year, what will your obsession be? Mighty God or human might? The way people talk about an election the way people talk about political leaders betrays this immediately, immediately. And I'm not saying that there isn't a space for Christians to try to voice in the, into the public sphere what godliness and fearing God looks like. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the condition of our hope. I'm talking about our emotional state. I'm talking about our public posture. Because very quickly, as we get into 2024, it's going to become very, very evident who puts their hope in an election versus the might of their God. It says that Jesus was seated over every ruler, authority, power, and dominion. What will give you lasting peace? A human ruler or a mighty God? Finally, what does mighty God mean in the return of Jesus when things are made new? Revelation 21 betrays this to us. It says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. One day, Jesus comes back and he will triumph over evil. Two different animals we use to refer to Jesus. Lamb, and lion, he will judge the world, lamb and lion. Wickedness will lose, it will be triumphed over. Satan and his beast will be put away. The world will be made new. And there is no form of worldly justice. There is no form of worldly justice that will come close to the justice that Jesus will establish when he comes back. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying human movements are all bad. That human movements dedicated to justice are necessarily all bad. 
We are committed to biblical justice, but all human efforts are simply shadows of the kind of change and justice and joy and wholeness that Jesus will come and establish when he returns. Why? Because he's mighty God. That's who he is. And the government will be on his shoulders, as Isaiah says. So to close, two thoughts. Band, you guys can come out. I want you to think about Jesus, mighty God, as our hope and as our example. As our hope and our example, because in your life, it depends on where the might lays. And I'm gonna explain this for a moment. There are people in this room whom God has put you in positions of power and influence, positions in which you find yourself to be strong. How do you wield it? Do you wield it as Jesus did? Do you use power to serve? Do you use that influence to sacrifice? Do you lay down yourself for the good of others? If you're in a position of might, my encouragement to you is to do as Jesus did and see his example while he was here on earth. But then finally, he is not only our example, but our hope. Because many of us will find ourselves in positions in which we are facing intimidating worldly situations in which others are the ones in power. Others are the ones who have the human might. We get afraid, we get stressed, we get worried, we get anxious. There's never been more anxiousness in our world than there is today. And a lot of this because of the decisions that are being made by others. And in the midst of that, we have to remember at the end of the day, who's on the throne? Jesus is our example when we find ourselves in positions of power, but he is our hope when we find that we're not in those kinds of positions. Because one day he will return and everything will be made new and he will reign truly, undeniably as mighty God. Pray with me. Lord, we give you all of these things and we ask that we would know you and see you and revere you and worship you as the God who reigns, the God who rules, the God who is mighty to save. That is who you are. Impress that upon our hearts. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.